For December 25th, 2023, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 808. Bradley Cooper's WandaVision. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, never happier than when we are hanging around with each other. Uh, everything is merry and bright. So, uh, through the years, we all will be together. It's the happy version of the, uh, it's a happy version of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, because it's Christmas! Merry Christmas, everybody! Merry Christmas! Hey! Yay. Yay. Merry Christmas! This is all, this uh, episode drops on Christmas Day. I'm not sure we've had that. I mean, I guess in 15 years, the way the calendar cycles through the, the days of the week, I'm sure Christmas must have fallen on a Monday. I, I don't recall it, though. So, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, obviously, this, <laughs> this is a pre-tape uh, because we're not uh, recording on Christmas Eve. We're spending that time with our families. And, uh, you know, and uh, we thought we would we would. Um, we would talk about uh, the happiest family of all. No, it's not Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in the manger. <laughs> it's uh, it's the Bernstein's. It's uh, Lenny, and uh, in in the film Maestro by uh, I should I say by Bradley Cooper. I just associate him with it. I, I I guess I understand from hearing some interviews that this was like sort of his passion project and his like zeal for it. You know, brought everyone else on board and and. Uh, and you know um did it 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 uh it, it uh, they it's dropped in in new york and la for a theatrical run largely for awards qualification i think a few weeks ago uh i don't think any of us got a chance to see it and we we saw it last week when it dropped on uh on netflix and so you can see this film uh, on Netflix now and, and talk with us about it. Who are, who are us? You ask? Well, I'm Matt Rather. Uh, I am here with Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Pete, did you get the, uh, the large provision of cigarettes, which are, uh, you know, vital equipment for this podcast? Uh, yes, yes, yes. I've worked through all of them already, oh, which is kind of amazing. My stomach hurts. Uh, I mean, are you supposed to put salt or hot sauce on them or something? Because just eating them plain is pretty disgusting. Pete, Pete, darling, you're not supposed to eat the cigarette. What a character he is. <laughs> we have Mark- to exert your personality oh, is is a, is a death, right? <laughs> something along those lines. Uh, Mark Lee is with us. How are you, Mark? Hello, hello, darling. Hello, Matthew. I can't do the tra- the Mid Atlantic accent. I'm not gonna try. But what I can do is tell you that um, on the on Thanksgiving Day, I can see Snoopy from my window. In a way, Matt, my family's just like the Bernstein family. In, in a way. way. Uh, and uh, we're pleased to have with us uh, our our friend, our comrade, our fellow overthinker, and the world's greatest living expert on Leonard Bernstein. Um, Jordan Stokes, uh, who's enough of an expert that he's probably going to correct my pronunciation of his name, which I just screwed up just now. Jordan, welcome. What Bernstein would do when people said Bernstein to him is point at a Steinway piano, which he always had around because of the life that he led, uh-huh. and say, it's not a Steinway. <laughs> is that, wow. Is that a real, is that a real joke? That's uh, Oscar Wildean and it's, uh, and it's, you know, cleverness. I've got no providence for it, but that was reported to me as a thing that Bernstein would actually do. Ah, Bernstein. Um, yes. Whenever I, whenever I have to remember how to pronounce his name, I think Leonard Bernstein. Uh, and that, uh, that sets me on, sets me on the right, 
the right path. Uh, well, Jordan, you you join us. Uh, you're our our guest lecturer today. You have pride of place in in this. Let's talk about uh let's talk about this film. Like what uh what struck out with you? Where shall we where where shall we begin our symphony? Tour? I'm sorry, they they all just sound like that. They all the like the <laughs> the sort of you know they they all just talk like that, darling. Uh, so Jordan, darling, where shall we start? Yeah, I mean, like, let, let's start with just an overview of what this film is, because probably a bunch of the people who are listening to this won't have actually watched it. Like, it's it's an artist biopic, right? We all sort of know what to expect from those. There are certain plot beats that you kind of want to always have, and pretty much we have a bunch of those. But it, it's weirdly, I really loved the film. I think it's it's stunning to look at and stunning to listen to, and the acting performances are fantastic. I think that if I went to it wanting to know the details of Leonard Bernstein's life, or if I like really knew those details well and wanted to hear that story told, I might come away really disappointed. Because what it what it really sort of is, is like a series of vignettes, which are partially about what it's like to be a person who has creative ambitions in a lot of sort of different directions. And then also, and mostly about what it's like to be someone who is married to a guy who is uh, either gay or bi and in the closet and to stay in that marriage over like many decades and have it slowly kind of kill you. Like that, that that's the main thing I'd say the film is about. And it's told again in this sort of like series of vignettes sp- spaced over many many years which is not really what it says on the can right it's not like the the fearless love story of america's greatest conductor you know it is that but it's also sort of not that that's my that's my summary of what the film is um and i I I would say it's a bit of a bait and switch in that way (laughs) right it didn't call it felicia and her trying times and the, the the turbulent relationship she had it's called maestro and that's like it's like such a statement to call it maestro Right. And then to kind of have it not really be about the maestro is a bit confounding. That's my take on it. And when did you say as vignettes? Yes. Um, and I I had referred to it earlier as episodic. Um, and we can debate if there's a, a distinction yeah. between those. It's just like I, I hear what you're saying, Jordan. Um, it's just like uh, I wasn't quite along for the journey in the same way. Not really because I was expecting like, you know, like point-by-point point, uh, covering of Leonard Bernstein's career. Um, but just because, like, the, the way that the sequence of events were laid out in a movie, I found to be unsatisfying. Yeah, and I'll say, like, another thing that it, it doesn't really do itself any favors with probably 90% of the people that are going to be watching it is that, like, one of the things about Bernstein is that he moves through circles with a lot of musical and artistic royalty of one sort or another. And, like, the, the movie is comprehensively uninterested in explaining to you who those people are. Like, it sort of makes sense if you assume that Bradley Cooper, who I think he, like, he stars in this he co-wrote it and directed it right and if this is his passion project he probably knows all of those people like the back of his hand so for him having a line where it's like oh this is like uh this is adolf comden and betty green right i think those are the names like he knows who those people are he wants you to be like oh it's those guys right which is what i felt but probably there are a lot of people who are like i don't know those names right uh and like someone mentions like oh we're gonna have lunch with kusi right okay that's like Sergei kusevitsky yeah i get that um and to me the offhandedness of it is charming but especially if you're not going to have like a real abc through line plot that could also be deeply annoying i imagine 
I, I love the moment where he first name checks Aaron Copeland and Aaron Copeland isn't on screen and just goes like, yup. <laughs> it's like, whoa, 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 hold on <laughs> <Yeah>. a minute. <laughs> That's Aaron Copeland. That's the guy from Beef It's What's for Dinner. That's like a famous guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he shows up later when they're on a swing together. And I'm like, wait, is this movie suggesting that Leonard Bernstein and Aaron Copeland were like romantic partners at some point? Is that real? I have no idea what's going on with this person's life. I mean, I like the movie a lot, too. Um, uh, I, I would additionally describe it as Bradley Cooper's WandaVision uh, in that it is. Yeah. They're, they're both about somebody who's being destroyed by a marriage to a robot. Uh, but um, <laughs> for slightly different uh, failures of the flesh, I, I would wager. But it, it has a similar sort of uh, presentationalist framing device where it changes film style by era. Right. Um, which is a kind of big thing to know about it if you're going to be talking about it, I guess. Well, sort of. OK, let's talk, let's talk about that yeah. for, for a little bit, because like one of the things what one of the most noticeable like features of it is that it starts it. Well, it starts in, in color, but the, the kind of the main action of the film starts in black and white for the first. Eh, let's call it half and then uh, switches into color for the second let's call it half and then uh, the that it's shot well that it's it's presented in um the the i guess what's called the academy ratio uh which is four by three you know the 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 size of an old television the shape of an old television rather than the the sort of widescreen presentation that you would expect for a for a big budget movie today except it's not like the the bump the movie has bumpers like uh the kind of present day of the movie i guess you sort of think like he's as an old man uh, uh, Bernstein is being interviewed and then uh, you know is like uh, extremely horny at Tanglewood and like you know dancing dancing uh, away to like what to Tears for Fears or like whatever and like and, and uh, that is shot widescreen so it's 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 kind of both right like if you, if you were actually to have an old movie that's in the Academy ratio you would expect the movie theater to bring the curtains in so that the you know the silver part of the silver screen was square ish on the uh, in front of you, but this is not that. It's it's in widescreen but with black bars on the side for ninety five percent percent of the percent of the film. And I mean the the I don't know I couldn't I I sort of see the the uh, black and white to color um, transition. You know I see kind of what's happening there thematically i think one of you in the in our prep as we were we were chatting about this t- uh, said it was sort of the the uh transition from his point of view to her point of view right the the movies you know he's really kind of the animating force and you you sort of stay with him um from the from the kind of the very opening black and white shot where he is like at sleep uh, asleep with a lover of his um in a like a loft apartment and there is a square curtain, which is, um, you know, the the curtain of a theater or is sort of a birth image also because this is sort of the thing where he's born, um, you know, from from that. Uh, he He's the, the I mean, I, we could actually talk about that scene a lot, but he's the, the animating force until it switches to color. And then you sort of stay with her. You stay with with his wife until... Um, 
you know, until her spoiler alert, her death. And that's, uh, that's kind of her, her part of the movie. And the, the pace sort of slows down. It becomes a little less stylized, a, a little less frenetic. Though still, yeah, it is, I guess it is sort of episodic. Style wise, it reminded me of something that two, two films, the Natalie Portman film about, uh, Jackie Kennedy and the Chris, uh, Kristen Stewart film about, uh, Diana Princess of Wales and those to the, which was called Spencer. I forget what the, what the Jackie Kennedy film was, was called. Uh, oh, and also the, uh, Ana de Armas film about Marilyn Monroe, right? Where they were these, these biography things, but they were like very thematic. They were very arty, uh, you know, kind of impressionistic and like really, you know, really very visual and sort of not non-realistic and, and presentational in parts and, and, um, this was all of that, uh, but just a little more mainstream, right? Like it, 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 it strikes me as what like people were saying about Godard during his, during the, like the, the heyday of the French new wave, which was that like, Oh God, if this guy could just like, you know, if he could just sex it up just a little bit, if he could just like, you know, take the arty stuff out just a little bit, it would be, uh, you know, it would be box office gold, man, box office gold. And, um, Art house gold, I guess, anyway. And, and this was like that with respect to those other, you know, frankly, more challenging movies, uh, where it sort of shared the spirit of it, but in a slightly, you know, a slightly more, um, a slightly more accessible way. I mean, is that, I don't know, Jordan, do you feel like that's a fair, uh, assessment of, of kind of like the, the style and what we're presented with? Yeah, I think that that's a good way of thinking. Although I haven't seen um, most of those movies, but like the ones that I have, yeah, I see the I see the connection that you're making. It seems to me that the like the black and white chunk, the the Lenny's story thing, really is a kind of like um, weird art film of some kind. It has all of these like bizarre things. There's a fantasy sequence where like suddenly he's one of the dancers and on the town. Yep. Um, there are like, it, it has this like, um, the scene changes very often are done by having some character like move in along the Z axis, like either right out at the camera or like off into the distance and the camera will like follow them. And then suddenly we're in a completely different scene 10 years later or something like that. It's, which it's is something really, that, really disorienting oh sorry Jordan, i didn't mean to interrupt it's, no, no, it's no, just go something on, go on. it's like a match cut like you're expecting to go to like they go through a door but when they go through the door they you're expecting them to emerge from the door but they emerge from a different door and like three weeks later or something or three months later or three years later or so, uh, something like yeah, that so yeah. it is this it has this disorienting thing but it also i mean it gives the impression of kind of like a tumble of this kind of like snowballing of events in in you know a huge amount of energy and just a huge amount of of almost almost inevitability um from that like uh you know from that first scene right where he's he's shot out of the loft window birth canal like straight from heaven like he comes down from the clouds (laughs) you know he's he's, Mm -hmm. god god has given him to us and and he just just tumbles tumbles along for that that first half of the film and is like birthed into Carnegie Hall, right? It's like, you know, it's like that curtain, which was definitely a window in somebody's loft, actually was like a curtain on a box in Carnegie Hall. Right. And it's it's just like, it's fun, right? I feel like that that part of the movie really has the energy of a lot of Bernstein's music. Although, and I mean, you know, all of the scoring in this is basically Bernstein. Um, he has a lot of range, for, for sure. The second part 
the one like his wife's story that to me feels like a like 1950s 1960s melodrama sure um with, with like all of the sort of slowness and focus on emotional pain and things like that 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 genre typically has each of these halves, like, you know, taking out the frame story, which is shot in widescreen, um, they both come sort of to an end with a big performance of Mahler. And one of the things that the film gets into a bunch is like the contrast between Bernstein the conductor and Bernstein the composer, where this is something that like, if you were a real Lenny head or whatever, you probably would have wanted the film to be significantly more about that, because that's the thing that comes up in all of sort of the biographical stuff about him, is that he was this sort of untouchably great and famous conductor um, and also a very weird conductor in ways that the film really doesn't seem interested in exploring and then he did always sort of regret that he hadn't composed more because he felt like that was somehow better somehow primary the film touches on these things very very lightly but it does make a real case for him as a conductor because we have these two really big long sequences where he does uh, the slow movement of Mahler 5 and then um, I think like the conclusion of Mahler 2, or the conclusion of one of the movements from Mahler 2. And what's interesting is that like the one that is in the black and white story, the like the, the Lenny story part, you don't see him. You see like the shadow that he's that he's casting on the wall as he conducts, and it just focuses on on Felicia, right on his wife. And it's absolutely like her moment to process her feelings about what it's like to be married to him. Whereas the the thing that comes at the end of her story, right, when like he's doing the Mahler 2, in that one, it is focused entirely on him, and you see him conducting, doing like the Bernstein conducting, which is absolutely weird. Like a thing that came out about this movie is that Bradley Cooper apparently like studied for six years to do the conducting in this. And a lot of musicians have been like complaining on social media, like, you know, I probably could have done that in just one year. Like how, how hard is conducting? Honestly, you need six years for this. I had been reading that and sort of laughing along. What I'd forgotten is that, Oh no, wait, he's not just conducting. He's doing the Lenny dance, right? Which is like, it's, it's a lot more specific than just conducting. And he does a very creditable job. I think of making it seem like you're seeing Bernstein at sort of the height of his celebrity when he could get away with doing absolutely bizarre stuff. Now, I will bet you a shiny dollar bill that someone somewhere had this idea that like we'll have the 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 Lenny story and then the the conducting scene is her in the middle of that and then we'll have the Felicia story and the conducting scene is him in the middle of that. Someone has like a diagram of a yin yang symbol on a wall that it's they, like they, tenet. they pointed it's to. It's like tenet. They you know what I mean the the whole the whole up and down back back and forth uh, back and forth thing, but but yeah. as like obvious and schematic as it is, it completely a hundred percent worked on me. Yeah, I mean, that, sorry, that that scene in the the Mahler two scene, like, is I think it's I I think he he the I, I read I don't know I heard a lot of marketing for this, and so I I'm, I might have drunk the Kool Aid on on some of it, but like I saw you know interviews with conductors who he who he trained with, and like one. When I think I, w- I want to say from Philadelphia, maybe or and then uh, and then apparently also with uh, with Gustavo Dudamel uh, in L.A. Though soon to be of New York, uh, you know L.A.'s L.A.'s losses is, is y'all's yeah. gain. 
Don't you forget it, Matt. No. Yeah. Sorry, continue. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I've seen actually Gustavo Dudamel's on social a lot more with like rehearsal footage of him being cute and like talking to the orchestra. Like he's he's rehearsing, you know, Firebird or something like that. And he's like, he, I'm not going to do the accent, but he's like, you know, singing things like less bouncy, less bouncy, you know, the, and, and, you know, just, just sort of being adorable. Um, but, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and I guess, I don't know, I maybe that has something to do with the movie, like conducting is conducting is in the zeitgeist, but like he, you know, I think he has been like studying conductors for, for a little while. I think there, there may be film of the particular performance that's being, that's being depicted there, but that like, I think, I think, and this, this could be like movie marketing, but I think the way that that was shot was that Bradley with a church full of extras and uh, the real like London Symphony Orchestra or something like Bradley Cooper actually attempted to conduct the the Mahler too. Like there wasn't a secret conductor standing behind the camera um, helping the the musicians. And like, so the story, the story I heard, and this is where it gets a little dramatic was that like the first day they did it twice and and felt like they didn't get it. Uh, And they were supposed to get it that day, but they, they hired everyone back for a second day at great expense, but couldn't do it. Couldn't do it anymore. This is your one shot. Um, you know, and he, he did it and it, and that is the take that, that, uh, that we see in the, in the film that is, you know, so affecting, um, that he, uh, uh, you know that he's actually conducting it and and like to hear Bradley Cooper be interviewed about it it's like yes and all the the musicians were coming up to me afterwards saying this was the one this was the where you were really conducting us and you know it's like yeah we put that one uh uh we put we put that one in the movie Pete you were about to jump in and and yeah, I wanted to I wanted to impose if I may a little bit on on Jordan's largesse um for those of us who are a bit less familiar, uh, I'm much more familiar with Stevie Sondheim, who has his name checked in here, and his reference in the company musical Ladies Who Lunch song uh, about the, the personage of Mr. Mahler. Uh, could we possibly get a super short explanation of who Mahler is or like what his deal is? Because if he's both act jumps in this movie, if he's like the end of both sections of this movie are big old Mahler pieces – Mahler, I don't think I think feel like he has a big reputation, or but it's not as as sort of clear or widely known as like Beethoven or Mozart. Like what what is what do we need to know about Mahler to understand what's happening meta narratively and the fact that he's the one who's playing at the end of these sections in the movie? I think there there are a couple of things that are going on there. Uh, like to begin with, the music sounds like that, right? <laughs> Would be one reason yeah. to choose it, and also uh, these I would were... mean like hyper intense and sort of dire and like dramatic and sort of harsh and modern. Is that how you would say? Yeah, and like like all of those things, and also very good, right? Yeah. Like if if you need this to be the big emotional stinger, like you could do a heck of a lot yeah. worse. Um, <laughs> I like also... how all those words could be used for Buckethead, also. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, or or tears for fears, right? Uh, yeah. So, like another thing is that in in real life, for sure, although Bernstein conducted you know everything, Mahler was like one of his his signature strengths. Um, also, like this is another kind of uh, metatextual thing. Um, both in real life, Mahler is kind of the model for Bernstein in that he is someone who is both a very famous conductor, mainly of opera, actually, and then also a composer. He sort of like did the thing that Bernstein was trying to do, where he would be both a famous conductor and then like a really prolific and game-changing composer. Mahler writes like uh, nine, nine symphonies and a bunch of songs 
songs and it's like a really substantial body of work he's he's front and center in all of the histories of music when you get to like the 20th the turn of the 20th century sort of right before schoenberg and stravinsky come in and, and modernism sort of blows the lid off of everything so like he's, he's kind of a model for bernstein in that way also um Mahler is jewish at a time when you could not have gotten the job conducting the like the Vienna State Opera as a Jew, so he converts to Christianity just to get the job. And when like there's that scene where they're all sitting around and they're like, you know, you should be Leonard Burns, like that. That's like the thing that actually happened with Mahler, right? Oh. So that's an interesting residence. Um, you know, it, it turns out that uh, that Bernstein's Judaism is not a problem with him having the career that he had, but like his his homosexuality or his bisexuality sexuality like really probably would have been right so he, he is living this double life um sort of in the same way that Mahler did also my guess is that a clear like a reference that the people making this movie would have had kind of floating around is that um Ken Burns the, the famous British director uh made a, a whole sort of series of composer biographies including one of Muller which is they tend to be like absolutely bizarre art films right so the idea of like oh we'll do something about this musical figure but it's, we're not going to play it straight we're going to have fantasy sequences we're going to have all sorts of weirdness like they, they probably were looking at the uh like the Ken Burns Muller film when they were thinking about that Thank you very much. I feel like that's really all helpful to know. That's awesome. Definitely. That's great. Um, but like it raises one one of the questions that I wanted to bring up here is the idea of like who is living in the closet in this movie? Because like I said, I feel like it it really to me it is satisfying um and affecting and powerful as the story of like the the closetedness of Bernstein and what that does to his wife, right? Um, which maybe I don't know. Like I'm as not being gay myself, I probably am like missing certain resonances here. You could probably criticize that it seems a little bit more concerned with what it's doing to her than with what it's doing to him. Um, but it's still like you know it had an effect on her, right? I think that, that that it would have an effect on anyone. And I'm curious, like, how many people in this film are in some kind of closet and who is keeping them there? I mean, I guess what there's the, the obvious, there's the obvious, just like the dudes, the various like side dudes. So I didn't keep straight. The one with the really pointy chin. Right? Like, <laughs> dun, dun, <ching. laughs> was he, was he famous? I don't even know if he was famous. Was that, was that Mahler? I don't <laughs> think that was Mahler. I think he's <laughs> no, I, I was just, I was just laughing at, at, at keeping straight. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I get in there even subconsciously. Um, so there, there is one, so there's this there's a particular shot that really sticks with me from this movie that builds a little bit on what you're talking about. And it also builds a little bit on the Jewishness, which is there's that long arboreal hallway, right? There's that sort of outdoor arbor trellis with the vines growing over it. And and one of the things that happens in the jump from the black and white uh, Academy ratio to the you know 50s, 60s Technicolor style is that there's a long shot of a little girl kind of running away through this hallway. And then there's a scene later where they're having a conversation, which is really, it's really kind of the chance to save their marriage, which like Leonard Bernstein pretty much fails at doing, uh, which is when she's sort of trying to get him to be honest about what's going on to kind of talk through it. And he refuses. And they're on the, they're in the same hallway, but they're on the far side of it and the doors to it are shut. 
So it sort of feels like in that respect, they've kind of been cordoned off and sort of like hidden away. I mean, it almost feels like they're closeted in in this sort of they're going through the performance of having this marriage that like isn't really like, in whereas they're sort of closeted, separated or closeted divorced or something like that, which is a weird way to say it. Um, but but it feels like you're staring because you don't get to look at them you're like you're looking at the closet. Um, and the thing that it just made me think of was a hopa. Right. It was like a Jewish wedding arbor as a symbolic rooftop over a family. And, and the idea that when they're young and they have their little kids, they're under the hopa. But then as they get older and he kind of gets sloppy about messing around and their marriage falls apart, they're kind of shut away outside of it or like in the end of it. But um, I mean, who else is closeted? It's him. Uh, I don't know what's going on with the daughter. She's not closeted. She's just sort of just mistreated. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, he, she's closeted in a sense. Well, she's closeting. She well, she's she's hiding herself away. Well, it's, there's so many cliches that a character in her position might be doing that this particular character isn't really doing much to her credit, both in the performance and the ways she's written, right? Because she she doesn't be like, oh my, I'm so tortured by this, right? Like she knows what she's getting into the entire time. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's not like her passions I mean, there, are being unspoken to. It's really about respects. Um, yeah. Oh, and it's like she does, she herself sort of doesn't know exactly what it is, right? Yeah. That like that it, it's destroying her, and she sort of doesn't know why because she thought that she was okay with this, right? Right. Right. There's there's that line where she's like, um, I think the the she at this point we're talking about about Felicia, right? Not the daughter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah. like there, there's this this great line where she talks about how uh like having a powerful personality sort of come into your life is a way of death, and then she says that like you know oh, but I can I can let him have these things, but it must become with no sacrifice right or else i'm gone and you like that's the story that she's telling herself now that like she she's happy to do this it's not a sacrifice for her and then we cut to 10 years later and like she's you know she's dying inside this is i think the thing that like to tell the story effectively the way that it works it actually needed to be as kind of episodic and vignette driven as it was because you need to see the fact that like these accommodations that the people come to that seem to work so well in the moment, it's like, Oh wait, no, wait a minute. Now it's 10 years later. Oh no, it didn't work. Right. And you like, we don't have time to watch it grind her down for 10 whole years. We just have to see like, Oh, now she has been ground down, you know? Um, And I think there's like one of the moments that I think is a stunning moment in this film is when uh, the daughter has like gone to Tanglewood and heard rumors that, you know, that her father is messing around with some guy and uh, Bernstein is like, you know, we should probably just tell her. Right. And his wife says, don't you fucking dare tell her. Right. And then he goes in and there's this scene where he, um, like he explains to his daughter, the story that he tells is that these are all lies because people are jealous of my massive artistic talents. And I think that, um, Bradley Cooper, although I think that this is like, um, I don't think that he is the most impressive actor in this film. I think that like really, really it's, uh, it's Felicia's show. She's so good in this, but he's, he's great in, in, in a lot of ways. And in this particular scene, like he plays Bernstein as such an awful, like slimy, terrible person. Right. And, and yet, we know that he wanted to come clean and it's like for his wife's sake, because this was their deal. And she said like, no, don't you dare. He has to stay in the closet. And I think that it like, 
The thing that I'm so impressed with is that you could play that to make it all the wife's fault and have us get mad at her, but Cooper, like both the way it's written and the way he performs it, does manage to like have Bernstein come off as absolutely like tainted with the stench of it, even though it wasn't his idea, right? Like the 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 way that he that he speaks it, like the way that he looks at the camera, all that kind of stuff, and that that like you know that moment really moved me. Now, is it anything from his actual life? You know, who can say? Uh, But you know, it's. It's the kind of thing that this movie seems to be interested in doing, thinking about these lies that people tell to themselves and others and how, like, even if there's a reason for it, it ends up just corroding and corroding everything. Yeah, when you're talking about that, I'm reminded of a scene early in the movie um, where he's talking about music. He's talking, I think he's talking about writing on the town, I think. It's on the town, right? It was in New York, New York, New York. Which one is? I forget which one it is. The one, yeah, the one the on the town is the show. New York, New York is the song. Right, right. Um, and he's talking. I think he's talking about New York, New York. And he's talking about how the arrangement doesn't work with just two pianos. It requires an entire orchestra because the pianos like can't uh, handle the harmonics to it effectively. Something along those. There's like some sort of very specific musical critique that he's making of a piece of music that he's trying to play on piano where like it doesn't work if it's just the two pianos and it has to be the entire orchestra. And, um, and it reminds me of, of how one of the factors in the change of their relationship is the change in the aesthetics of their surroundings and also in the kind of performance style and what's being presented, which I think from a film perspective can be thought of as, you know, kind of what the arrangement of the particular instruments of the sort of orchestra that's happening right now, like, like their relationship starts in a particular sort of arrangement, meaning like, these are the lights. These are the actors. This is the, you know, they're cheating out. It's like close up of him, close up of her over the shoulder, soft light, you know, like, like it's, and it's, and it's this very specific um, performance style, which also kind of hooks into the uh, very extreme form of closetedness going back to talking about being closeted because being closeted at the beginning of the movie is very different from being closeted in the middle of the movie. Cause the, it's like being closeted in the early seasons of Mad Men to being closeted in the later seasons of Mad Men. I have no idea how much any of this corresponds to real life. Right. But like, uh, but, uh, but like that, it's just so unthinkable that he, and everybody is so formal that, you know, it, there's a performance that you're doing anyway. There's a mask you're wearing anyway in your little suit in your, in your little like black and white, you know, uh, Broadway fantasy land, you know, uh, um, um, show. And then when it sort of becomes more naturalistic, it becomes, it doesn't work as well. Like, like it, it can't function because the kind of mm, whole arrangement of it point. isn't yeah. supporting the closetedness because it's not putting everybody in like stuffed shirts and making everybody have very formal relationships. Like things get looser. Um, maybe it's about the toilet, the bathroom door opening a little bit more. Right. It's, it's it's like you, you got to see the guy. You got to see the guy poop. Um, hmm. <laughs> <but> <laughs> the, the other thing that's like that's really different about the closet in the beginning of the movie versus like the uh, the the back half of the movie is that like in, in the beginning of the movie, it seems to be that like his his 
composing career is sort of like where he goes to be with gay men and they're all these like mm. creative geniuses who are like hanging out together and making really like impressive art and then like sort of incidentally also sleeping with each other to a certain degree and that was maybe what she signed up with it's like you know if you want to if you want to like you know if you want to have an affair with copeland like fine if you want to go like um introduce me to this very extended meditation on like sailor butts in tight pants right while you're making on the town she's like yeah i'll be part of that dance sequence whereas in the latter half of their life his male lovers are like just sort of toys for him which are brought in by his handlers to entertain him so that he can maintain this sort of perfect domestic uh fantasy marriage so that he can have his career as a conductor and one of the things that like struck me is that there's a line where he's talking about the difference between composing and conducting and he says like oh conducting is where you face the public composing is you go alone into like a gray room and make art and that's not what we've seen him doing when he's composing right him composing was him like hanging out in this sort of stylized black and white room full of full of other gay men that he's flirting with and like that that was the one model of the closet and she seems to be into that. She's like, let's break away from this stuffy world of, uh, of, of Tanglewood. And like, I want to see you go do on the town stuff, but she's not down for having to throw a formal dinner party. And he like goes off to make out with a guy upstairs and she has to continue to stay in the formal dinner party. So, okay. So you guys have been doing a great job of kind of explaining the structure of this movie and the vignette style of it and the kind of the, the closet metaphor and things like that. And all, all the stylistic pieces and how they, they change over time. But what I still can't reconcile and would love to hash this out with you guys is the crucial break around like the two-thirds or so mark. Um, where, again, we see Bernstein in a closet, right? This is kind of when he's hit rock bottom. Um, you know, he's uh, apart from Felicia. He's doing cocaine. He's on the phone with his daughter, and it's in a uh, he's in a dark room by himself. Let's call it a closet, right? It's not it's, not, it's ambiguous as to where exactly he is, um, but he's having this very twisted phone conversation with his daughter, and let's let's slip like a we there, referring to one of his his male lovers, and his daughter's not having any of it, and and Bernstein is really upset over this, right? Um, and then after that, you cut to Felicia. Um, kind of relaying a, a a embarrassing story where you know she thought that he was gonna she was gonna take up a male suitor when in fact that um, you know the male suitor is just you know <laughs> um, you know uh, has a crush on another man and then we cut to the Mahler sequence in the cathedral right is it some way like what exactly happened there that allowed Bernstein to sort of like escape from this prison that he'd put himself into. And also that allowed Felicia to escape a different kind of prison. Because, like, crucially, right, like, without much transition or setup, you know, we go from uh, this uh, very personal, intimate moment with Felicia um, confessing this embarrassing thing uh, to Bernstein's sister to Bernstein doing the Lenny dance, (laughs) right, just uh, unleashing his... um, you know, pure creative artistic force upon the world and overwhelming everyone himself, the musicians and Felicia, including, and they, and, and, uh, and Lenny's is surprised to see Felicia there. They embrace, they kiss. And from there, 
you know, uh, uh, Felicia's health declines, uh, and you know, he had that kind of back half of the movie where uh, you know Lenny really dedicates himself to 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 to, to caretaking for her. Right? How do we get there from the rock bottom place? I don't fully understand. I mean, I think that's a, it's a good question. It is a sort of very a strange transition in some ways. The way that I understood it um, is that. Again, like I, I had, I had sort of made my analytical decision to say that the like this color half of the movie is really Felicia's story. Bernstein is no longer the main focus. How he gets himself out of rock bottom is uh, is not something I think that that needs to be told at this point. I think that the the real there's a kind of like sign-off moment at the end of that that story, which uh, is inter- interestingly shot like just all in close-up, the sort of unchanging, dead-on shot of her face as she explains that like, you know, she thought she was going on a date with this guy and then he turns out to be gay. And she says like, well, I guess I have a type. Um, and then she starts to sort of like ask... Uh, ask Lenny's sister about, like, you know, what's Lenny doing? Could we get together with him? And there's sort of this moment where it's like the people are saying, like, you're not going to take him back, are you? And she she says, like, that yes, she is. That uh, That her... You know, that really she was the one who was in the wrong, not so much because she couldn't give him the freedom that he wanted to just sort of like have these careless affairs, but that she had told herself that she was fine with him being gay. And in fact, she wasn't like over the long haul. It turned out that she wasn't, it destroyed her and that's what destroyed their marriage. And then she's like, but you know, like I was wrong about my own capabilities. I needed him. I wouldn't admit to myself that I needed him to like really be a husband to me. And therefore it's all my fault, which isn't, I think like a very satisfying place, like for a, a real sort of moral teaching about marriage, but does seem like a thing that someone would psychologically tell themselves. So that's her sort of deciding I'm going to go back to him. And then she turns and like, says, like direct address to the camera, any questions? And I feel like there's then like a period and her character's arc has come to this sort of necessary, uh, not necessarily conclusion, but like she's, the pendulum is swinging back. She's going to go back to him. And then you go to the conducting scene, not so much because that's what follows from her resolution, but because there was that conducting scene at the end of the first half of the film and we need to have symmetry that's the way that i sort of experienced it sure yeah it, it makes sense it still it felt uh quite unsatisfying jarring to me but i think like i would say like this movie would probably bradley cooper would probably say uh feature not a bug i mean he wouldn't say that but yeah and I, I mean like let's we can all sort of place our bets had she not died would she have then just stayed his sort of happy married to him forever, or would they have blown up again in ten well, years? Well, mi- miserable married to him forever. You know, not not. I mean, not happy married to yes. him forever. <laughs> happy in the sense that she's not causing problems for him and how he wants to lose, lead his life, which is basically the way that that men tend to define happiness for their wives. Got it. So 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 happy in the sense of one must imagine Sisyphus happy is the yes. you know. <laughs> so the so way this, by the way, this this is a good point to uh, to name. To, to check the uh, Bernstein quote at the beginning of the movie, right? A work of art does not answer questions. It provokes them. And its essential meaning is in the tension between the contradictory answers. 
I mean, this is like very on the nose, right? Like yeah. this is basically saying like this movie's going to be complicated. You're not really going to come away with like you know something you know firm and pat. It's a. Um, I mean, it's a. It's a key for reading the movie. It's also, I think, a key for reading what the what the um the the kind of the Bradley Cooper hero worship version of of Lenny is right. Like that 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 it's you know he's not one thing, and that's like the 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 film is like very much. Uh, Jordan, you were saying before that there is discourse, like there is acad- or well, is is it really academic discourse to to spe- speculate about someone's sexual orientation? But there is discourse that is, uh, you know, was Bernstein gay or was Bernstein um, bisexual? Right, and that that like this film definitely comes on comes down on the side of of bisexual uh, that which is you know, which is kind of of a piece with this, like there, there are many, many people kind of stuffed inside of him. God, every, just everything I say, that's the second one. I, I heard it. Um, the, uh, <laughs> that, that there are like, there are, uh, he has, he has multiple sort of personalities or aspects to, to his character, whether it's as, uh, a family man and, uh, a kind of like cruising, uh, gay dude, uh, of that time period, right? Like whether it's as uh, heterosexual or homosexual, homosexual whether it's as um a, a composer or a conductor right like he's he's got all of these uh he's got all of these kind of personae like in inside of himself and that's the that's that's kind of the like i don't know i, f- I feel like there is there's something a little hero worshipy about that and it, you know it's clear that like bradley cooper has great admiration for the man and that like um you know the, from the the kind of the bombastic beginning uh where he is uh you know, where he is birthed from heaven, from the like the clouds that are behind that that loft window um, and sort of given to us. Right. Like inspired with the the uh, inspired with the the sunlight, the sunlight of God. Uh, right. To the, It's clear that he is like there's it's almost like too much is put into him. Oh, God. It's almost like, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, he he's um, his his. Uh, a stock of abilities, of talents, of personalities, of genius, of, of all of these things sort of exceeds the amount that, that a single, a, a single person can, can contain. And that's sort of like the read, you know, that's sort of the read on him. And, and it, I think you're right to point out that it has the effect of like softening some of the real anguish of, uh, you know, the real anguish of having same sex relationships at the time and kind of like going through, you know, going through what, what he went through. It's like, it's, pre- it's presented, uh, though it causes like, it causes some suffering. It's presented as like someone who can't just stop eating desserts, you know, like who can't, who just like loves the food so, so, so much. And it's of a, of a piece with the kind of like the, the, uh, not over the top, but the kind of like grand nature of the music and, you know, the kind of the, the grand ambitions and, and all the, the personalities, the personalities within him. Right. And that's, you know, I don't know. It's, 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 it's why, uh, you know, it's why I think like, despite a lot of trouble with Felicia, uh, he never brings himself to say, by Felicia, and that. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, I've been, I've been, I've, I've had that chambered all day. I had to, <laughs> to, to let that out, right? And like, uh, why she never seems to uh, say goodbye as well, because there is this sense, um, there is this sense in which, like, she is. 
you know, I, I don't know. She is still, she still loves him. Um, and that's, uh, you know, and that, and that she has sort of dedicated her life to this and, and that like, uh, she's not going to, she's not going to pull the, the ripcord now. It was made with, I mean, if not the, the participation, at least the kind of the, the blessing and the kind of like the, the, the spiritual participation of the three Bernstein children. Um, so I, I wonder if there's a piece of it where, you know, the, the story of their parents' marriage is, um, like, uh, idealized a little bit where like, you know, the parts of the marriage that were wonderful were, were wonderful. Uh, but the parts of the marriage that were, you know, but there were all these other, yes, yes, yes. All those other things that, that, uh, uh, stemmed from the surfeit of, of genius and, and ambition. But like, oh, the, the, when they were, you know, when they were clicking, they were, uh, they were like, uh, true loves and, and wonderful parents or, or, something like that yeah i mean it is interesting it doesn't necessarily paint either of them as perfect people uh certainly not him but it does it is like you know your parents were as cool as heck and really loved each other is basically the message that the film seems to have and right. i can understand vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis the children's point of view right on the you know yeah, yeah. um it's uh yeah, yeah. wow but i i think there's there's a lot to what you say the, the idea that like the sort of muchness of bernstein which i think is you know if you want to listen to a bunch of bernstein music that idea that there is just like so much almost too much and you can either get on board with that or find something else to listen to is like you know that that seems like good good music criticism to me uh does seem to be where this film is coming down i think it's it's pretty weird in this day and age that you end up with a film where like the the last story beat is yeah so this guy is like you know sleeping with his hot young conducting students and that's okay and good right that's a a wild place for a film to, to land in this year of our lord 2023 um and you know, it is the kind of the mission statement of the the movie is that Snoopy has to come into the house. And that even <laughs> with such a house and even with such a Snoopy, like it's going to come in. And that's what makes Bernstein Bernstein, which, um, you know, it's it's not exactly the He's kind even, of hagiography. Yeah. Hang on. He's he's Done. even like indignant, right? Who abandoned Snoopy by the door? You know, who who <laughs> left like this is a crucial, you know, you cannot treat this this beagle this way. I'm sorry, you're saying it's the kind of hagiography. Well, I was saying it's not the kind of hagiography that I think you usually get from artist biopics, but it is still a kind of hagiography. Um, and it, it's sort of interesting to imagine somebody saying that like, oh, well, but you have to love him warts and all uh, because that's, you know, that's just the nature, right? Like he's he's both these things. He he is hate in his heart and no hate in his heart. His truth is a lie, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's the, yeah, I mean, to, to, oh, sorry. To unpack that scene a little bit more, right? You have to love Bernstein warts and all. That scene, right, like, you can see his charisma. You can see his, like, uh, just bristling arrogance, right? He's like, he's a dick. He's just, like, throwing this poor conducting student under the bus, undermining him in front of uh, an ensemble that ostensibly he's supposed to be leading, right? Mark, and it's then called, everybody's it's called, just kind of like, clap, clap, clap. Oh, yeah, 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 Bernstein, you know, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's called, yeah, it's called negging. What he's doing is called negging. He's Yes, <laughs> precisely. No. I wonder um, if there's it, a- it is a, it is a curious way to end the movie for sure, and there's also that, that weird stinger which we referenced earlier, right? With the uh, it's the end of the world as we know it, and that you know Leonard Bernstein, and then 
music stops. Yeah. That, that was the one thing I wish they had taken out. Like they were trying to be campy there and it didn't work. The, the giant Snoopy balloon, I like, I had to pause the movie because I was rolling, literally rolling around on the floor in my basement. Oh, I shrieked. Like, I shrieked. You know. It was so good. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then also the moment when, like, the one moment when Felicia, like, looks across the, the lawn and sees, like, her husband's uh, young young lover driving up, and the orchestra goes, ba-da-da, ba-da-da, da-da-da, as again, yeah. like, yeah, 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 brilliant, yeah, yeah. brilliant, brilliant. But the Leonard Bernstein thing they could have left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, agreed. We we talked a little bit about the music when we did the... the um West Side Story episode, uh, the the new Steel, Spielberg version of of that uh, that film, and um, you know we talked about it then of the the kind of like the energy and the kind of like teeming with life, the like the and also like also like a certain amount of compression, right? Which I want to sort of relate to the idea of like too much being kind of compressed into Lenny's like Lenny's self, right? Like uh, the the compression of all the people living on top of each other and kind of like what that uh you know what that what that does um it's really you know i don't know does that uh, uh, but but i i have to ask something of you jordan like and and this i'm sorry this is going to sound like i'm trolling but is is bernstein's mass good you know um is, is the leonard is, is the leonard bernstein mass like <laughs> is it good you know <laughs> I think that um, there, you know, no, no music is absolutely good. If I wanted to make the case for Bernstein as a composer, uh, never be the piece that I would play. Right. Um, and if I wanted to like throw on some Bernstein, I don't think that would be the piece that I would play either. You know, a lot of the, the music that they focus on mostly is a lot of the good Bernstein, right? Like, uh, you know, the 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 closing chorus to Candide, sure. which gets a loving treatment. Um, you know, the. the um, what the the age of anxiety symphony plays a bit you know, the, on on the waterfront score plays near the front of it uh, bit, yeah. you know all of that stuff is fantastic um during West the black and story. white during the black and white section actually right where where it's kind of like oh well this is like this is a black and white movie in the you know in the thing one thing that made me made me wish i'm sorry i'm going to i'm going to film snob a, a, a little bit like one thing that made me wish i had seen it in the theaters was that there was some wonderful like dark cinematography uh like dimly lit things and on a on a hdtv man like all those blacks get crushed and you can't make it's all just black it's all just inky and you can't make out the like the shades of gray at the the darker range whereas you know something that that you see that is shot on film and you see on film you can just see so much into the shadows which is one of the things that made uh, you know, made some of the cinematography of the time just so cool, so so enduring and so yeah. so indelible. But Let me just, something that it gets too dark. Like, yeah, there's a lot of shots where um, Lenny and Felicia are looking at each other, and they're shrouded in shadow, and then there's a searing light yeah. like around and in between them. Um, and I love that stuff. It's like, oh yeah, okay. Like I I, I see the the story that the the visuals are trying to tell here. Um, and again, I will obligatorily say like, you know, all that, the, the cinematography, the black and white, the heavily presentational stylized um, um, uh, uh, sequence of events and, and staging things like that made the first uh, part of the movie much more interesting, at least like kind of more arresting of attention than, uh, than an easier watch than the latter half of it. 
but it's it's yeah, like I mean, it changes it's like it changes genre like i think like jordan is right to like to to say it's like it's it's douglas sirk or something you know and it's this like this sort of exquisitely raw like the clothes are so beautiful and the colors are so brown tinged and the whole you know the whole thing is just like um there there are aspects of it uh aspects of it of of melodrama. I think what, what saves it entirely from being melodrama is that the acting is just so good, right? The, the, uh, like, and, and, and really everybody. And also like just the, 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 the technique, like there's, there's a, there's like a Robert Altman, everyone is talking over everyone all the time character to the sound design to, to the way the scenes are. Like people talk to each other and, and neither of them stops speaking for the, for the duration of the entire scene. And there's just this thing and like the part happen that way and some of the arguments between them uh happen that way i don't know there's there, there's just like so much that 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 saves it from being cheap um when when the the visual style is more in that like is is more in the direction of that melodramatic uh stuff but but i do agree with you mark that like again i go back to this thing that the black and white part is his experience of their marriage and the color part is her experience of yeah. their marriage yeah, yeah, yeah. and his experience was a lot more fun yeah, I would just ask like that. There was a tale, and I mean, yes, of course, it's tragic. You know, the Felicia is, is dying of cancer and all this kind of stuff. But um, it brought it every music biopic that has the kind of the characters get old and things get sad piece at the end inevitably takes me back to Walk Hard, and that movie is a jewel. I love it to death, and it has also kind of killed music biopics for me. are are there any specific story beats from maestro that you were looking at and being like yep there's dewey cox oh the 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 drug binge the cocaine (laughs) this little like cocaine hat where he like puts the tray on his head to shut out the rest (laughs) of the party (laughs) yeah yeah everybody who's a biopic has to have that right like and that's why I like just kind of like grown my way through Bohemian Rhapsody because it was so by the numbers in that way. And why I was delighted by Rocket Man um, because, uh, well, you know, we talk about the presentational kind of, you know, fantastical um, uh, uh, style, right? Like Rocket Man stuck with that through the whole thing. And I love that. Well, yeah, um, Rocket Man is also, it's about the, the effect of listening to that music, right? It's about the, the what the movie does yeah. is kind of yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it does, it shows you how that music makes you feel, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, and this is this is kind of I mean the first half is kind of like that in that the like you know some of the stark angles and some of the some of the stuff it's like of a piece with the the like the modern sort of city music that is not you know I don't know like like uh like is it Jordan, is it is it is it fair to say, like in terms of music history, that you got Wagner, then you got Mahler, then you got like Stravinsky and Schoenberg, and then like we kind of like take a step back towards the the like the the music that people want to listen to for for uh, with with Bernstein, right? Like that he's he's sort of like he's sort of like Mahler in that he's a transitional figure between you know uh, between a music that that uh, I might call more more accessible and something that I might call a little a little more alienating and like he manages to do it in a way that that can be popular right yeah and i mean there's there's a whole kind of um 
I think Nadine Hubbs is the person to read about this if you want to. There, there's a kind of like mainstream tradition of where music was going to. And like in the middle of the 20th century, a lot of people who were like, you know, serious thinkers about music, public intellectuals and musicians and composers and things like that, believe that music was teleological and like each new generation is leading us further and further down this road, which eventually is going to lead us to um, music that sounds so harshly dissonant that you like, you know, no one would ever listen to it basically. And like that grind of progress is continuing. And then you have like a whole bunch of other people who are the composers that people actually care to listen to. And like uh, Bernstein is sort of in there, but Copeland is really the guy. And it's like a lot of like gay Jewish men from New York who invent this kind of like wide open American sound with certain amounts of jazz sort of flowing through it that goes on to kind of like define what it means for music to sound American and populist and whatnot to this day uh, to the degree that like if you have a film score and they want something to sound like American and wholesome you're going to be hearing warmed over Copeland and Bernstein like again he's not the central figure in that story because he was too busy conducting but his music is very much of a piece with copeland and the idea that like oh yeah that's because they knew each other biblically and were like hanging out and and swapping ideas in the sort of the the formative part of their their careers makes a whole lot of sense was leonard bernstein related to elmer bernstein the, I the composer? think no relation. Yeah he's I the guy no who relation. wrote the he's the guy who wrote the soundtrack the magnificent seven which I would describe as warmed over Copeland. I was thinking of my favorite works of warmed over Copeland, which include the theme to Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Also, as like, uh, I just remember the first time I watched that show, my dad like briefly looked at it and like sort of scoffed at the theme song saying like, that's just, you know, a ripoff of Fanfare for the Common Man and like walked out of the room. And I was like, ooh, cool, it's a ripoff of Fanfare for the Common Man. That's kind of nice. <laughs> like, I kind of like that situation. Um, yeah, and and I mean, like, Deep Space Nine is very much a show about like what it means to be American, right? Yeah. To a, to a certain degree. Yeah, no, the, apparently they're not related, although they were friends. Well, there they're, you go. I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, Pete, you you haven't lived until you've heard the like the Hard Rock remix of uh, the Deep Space Nine theme song that was released on the uh, CD single of of it, which I I had. <laughs> A teenager <laughs> awesome because i was a nerd but there's a there's like a screaming guitar solo uh there's a screaming guitar solo and the thing and the you know the the uh drum kick gets in you know Sorry, it's it's how what a pathetic drop from the from the you know uh, uh, sublime music of Mahler and uh, you know the the score of West Side Story and and what to uh, to me you know singing out the the thing. Well, Pete, save oh, oh. us. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm here not. To, I'm not here to save Leonard Bernstein, but to bury him. Right? Uh, I guess we're not burying. We're praising him. Whatever. The movie doesn't really uh, come down that hard on him. That this way or that. I did want to put a thought out here. Uh, and I'm curious what you guys would think. And this this does dovetail with this idea of Bernstein is associated with a movement in classical music toward – I mean West Side Story, the album of West Side Story was one of the top-selling albums of the 60s, right? So like this is a guy who is very much in the zeitgeist as it were. But this movement towards popular classical music – 
being embraced by a biopic, which also has large sections that kind of get increasingly long, like as you go through the movie of periods of like, I'm building up detail, I'm building up detail, I'm doing a big musical number that exemplifies and processes everything that's come beforehand. Right. And it's sort of like, oh, I'm building up detail. I'm building up detail. Here's a big musical number that has to do with everything that just happened beforehand. When we, the scene, that sequence, Mark, that you were talking about like a while ago, I, I when I was looking at I was thinking of the, the, the conducting in the church as like a big old poop that was like pooping out everything that had been happening for the first 25 minutes of the movie. That it's sort of like all built up to this big performance and that that was kind of to an extent the movie was kind of saying that this sort of thing was necessary for the art which is not really a very human way of looking at it but the thing i wanted to add to sort of propose or suggest is that the the music biopic strikes me as essentially romantic with a capital r in the sense that it presents you with music that is motivated by feelings that are associated with things that happen through experience to the artists right and like the artist, oh man, my girlfriend broke up with me. I have to get in this van and drive around. Now I'm I'm playing, but fortunate son or something. That's not what you would play. But like I'm thinking of like almost famous and like stuff like that. That in a lot of musical biopics, the intensity of experience and emotions of the musicians are then channeled into their art. And I feel like this is a comfortable place to be for like rock music or rap music. But when you get into classical music, it gets tough because classical music is a very long and complicated and B uh, the, the aesthetic value of most classical music Bernstein, notwithstanding it's not in its bombast, but in, you know, in, in this, in the, there's a lot of, I mean, subtlety nuance, but just like the degree of detail and the sort of fine details that you're looking to have be excellent. You know, there's there's balance to it. You know, the dynamics, they're big, they're small. You know, it's like, you know, yeah, it's like, oh, I'm Beethoven. I'm so tortured. I'm going to write something loud. Right. And it's like, well, no, like it's, you know, any any symphony has a lot of stuff in it. And it it feels a little bit in this movie like in in seeking to fit Bernstein's life into a music biopic, it, it stacks an impossible number of life experiences into the explanations for specific artistic performances. And I, I don't know whether that strains, like, like if you were to try to think, people who've spent more time with classical music than me, which is everybody on this podcast, if you were to think about like, what is the process? What would be the sort of character process that goes into creating like great works of classical music? Like, would it be similar to the kind of process that goes into writing a great rock song? Or are there like really important emotional or practical differences in the way that the composer uh, would actually go about doing it, in which case the story should maybe be told in a different way or could. Um, I mean, am I making any sense in kind of trying to see why this movie is kind of pulling on its seams a little bit or the seams of the genre? (sighs) I mean, I think that there's, there's a sense in which I don't know if this is actually a true story, but I can very easily sort of tell a story where I, um, you know, as as Elton John, I have like one big like blow up fight with my family or something like that, and then like I I go home and I write Tiny Dancer or something. Yeah, like, that, right? <laughs> yes, like yes. whether that's actually <laughs> how. Po- on Saturday night, I go home and I write Tiny Dancer. Exactly. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but like, I, like I don't. 
I think that actually that story about how popular music gets made is probably mostly a lie, but it is a very, very familiar story and one that like we get sold not just in music biopics, but in like everything that we learn about creativity from a very young age, right? It, it leads to a lot of maladjusted thinking where people are like, oh, I need to like, you know, I need to go have some terrible experiences so that I can then make good art. You know, I I, I have to I have to treat people around me like trash because that's what I saw the the people doing in in uh, in Walk Hard. Anyway, um, <laughs> like it, it, it is harder to imagine somebody like you know having Bernstein um, having a experience like he's having, where I don't know he he like meets his old lover on the street. And they like are are going to kiss, but it's like, oh, people are looking at me. They're gonna know. They're gonna realize that this is Bernstein that's doing this stuff. I can't do it. And then he like he goes home and in a fit of emotion conducts Mahler's Fifth Symphony really, really well. There's something, as you say, like kind of non credible about that. Um, what I wonder is whether whether it seems like this movie really is making that move because it's not a move that i saw it making actually and it, it's so familiar from artist biopics that like i'm almost surprised that i didn't see it and if you say that you saw it in this i'm not trying to say like well you're wrong and you're, you're seeing the movie wrong maybe it was there and i just didn't notice but it felt more to me very much that like the the music was just sort of like there and then the the events and the emotions and things like that are almost downstream of the music. So like there's there's this one moment um, where he sort of in the second half we actually see him composing alone in a gray room, which is when he's writing Mass, right? Um, and he comes out and he says like I've written I've finished Mass, and everybody applauds except that uh, his wife runs outside and jumps in the swimming pool fully clothed, right? And everybody else seems to read this as oh she's so happy for him that she did this but uh but he realizes that it's something else like you see that his eyes sort of like go flat with pain and we see her underwater like pressing her hands against her forehead and against her ears and the reason why is that like well now that he's finished this piece they're gonna have to go to like the premiere and stuff and she's gonna go out like have to put on a brave face in public one goddamn more time and she just can't anymore right so it's not that like the the emotion gave rise to the piece it's that he was composing because he's a composer. And now that the piece has happened, their whole lives need to sort of be re rearranged around that piece. And they have to, you know, go through all this pain. Or similarly, sort of like at the end, Mark, this was something again that came up in the in the back channel. Like, why does she take him back after he performs the second Mahler thing? Like, part of it is that, like, well, he is just that good at conducting. And she's moved by the music. And then she's like, okay, let's give this one more shot. So again, it's like, it's more like their emotions are downstream of the music rather than upstream of them. Peter, you convinced? Oh, <laughs> I, I mean, I was going to let that be the final word, but I mean, I think I think it does speak to the importance of. I mean, this um, this reminds me of Amadeus, Amadeus, in the sense that there are certain when you do musical movies about certain sorts of musical personages, you sort of have to deflect the attention away from the main person to somebody else because it is so much more dramatic to watch somebody else experience the music for the first time than it is to actually watch the person working on it. <laughs> like, right. Like, um, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess, 
I guess uh, the other the other thought I had about the movie, and I don't know, maybe this is a little bit apropos of nothing. Maybe it pulls it all together. Um, Rhapsody in Blue never appears in this, right? Like for me, Rhapsody in Blue is is a quintessential Bernstein conducting piece. I don't know whether that's a conventional opinion or not. Maybe that's just my Spotify. But I think of of Bernstein as being big on Rhapsody. In Blue. Is that true? Is that accurate? That I he- had that thought as well too, Pete. I mean, is, is it a New York just a New York connection? Maybe I don't know. I mean, it also, it, uh, it's not one that I think of him when I think of him as a conductor, maybe because like uh, the, the conventional historiography of Bernstein is that as a compo- as a conductor, he is very serious and does like Mahler and Beethoven and stuff like that. And then as a composer, he's like kind of light classical and has all this stuff with jazz. So like a, a, a big conducting performance of Rhapsody in Blue sort of crosses the streams a little bit. But of course he did conduct it, right? Like you, yeah. you listen to that recording, it really exists. So that is kind of interesting, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess in my mind while I was watching this movie, I was wondering about a different movie that is about the clarinet player who plays that line at the beginning of Rhapsody in Blue and what their life is like as they get prepared to do that in the sort of orbit of Leonard Bernstein and what it feels like for them to do this thing that gets played all the time but Leonard Bernstein and, and Gershwin get like all of the credit for. It was weird that it was a music movie about classical music in which the musicians are almost entirely absent also, uh, in addition to it being like not able to look directly at the sun of its subject and, ha- and, and sort of going through the relationships that the person had. It's hard to make movies about music, man. It's tough. It's yeah, not. and again, like the the idea of this being a movie that's partially about Bernstein, the great conductor, right? Mm-hmm. Like we see that, He's great in the sense that people clap for him. And we see that he's great in that he does this like sort of bizarre interpretive dance on the podium, right? But one of the things that people people often say about conducting is that like what you see when you're there in the theater is like almost zero percent of what being a conductor is all about there's like a pretty good case to be made that the conductor on the day of the performance could just stay home right um and like you know there's a lot of conductors who will who will yell at you for saying that but there are others who like almost put that into practice yeah. and like you know when 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 the orchestra is really playing they're just kind of like standing there occasionally waving their arms there's this one guy who specializes in early music in the netherlands i forget his name but like as when he performs he's just he like walks off stage he comes back in and dances around a little bit like facing the audience like you know points behind him for like all right the, the oboe's about to go and sort of like does a finger drop and the oboe goes because he's rehearsed them already, right? So, like, Bernstein was a great conductor. The thing that made him a great conductor was the way he was able to work with instrumentalists and draw a certain performance out of them. And then also certain ideas about, you know, loudness and timing, yada, yada, yada. Uh, He's notably willing to, like, take great liberties with the score, which, again, if you were a real Bernstein fan, the fact that that never comes up in this would probably bother you a lot. But anyway, like... Yeah, to to do a a movie that's really about him as a musician, you might want to put it from the point of view of somebody who's like in his orchestra. And like, what does he do to actually get like the fourth chair violin to play the heck out of that Mahler? Oh, we could make it even more boring than that. It could be like the movie could just be like three weeks of like him holed up at his desk score with score preparation, (laughs) you know, just like really reading and like notating out his, you know, his idea of the score. 
score before even before even you have to like figure out how to manage rehearsal time and communicate your ideas to the players. Um, yeah, that's uh, you know that 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 would be the the even more boring and accurate. And at the version. end, there's a portal and there's a bunch of punchy punch and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know when the when the portal opened up and he he had a. Uh, yeah, he had a, a CGI punching match with um, I don't know who is his who is his mortal enemy as a you know as a like a mid century American intellectual. The, the the portal opens up and Snoopy floats through like I'll take it from here. <laughs> oh, there you go. And we uh, and we go. All right. Well, uh, I think Snoopy. I think we're gonna grab onto the Snoopy balloon and and float away from this podcast. Want to thank everybody for listening to us. Merry Christmas again. Hope uh, hope you are enjoying yourself wherever you are, whether however you celebrate or don't celebrate. Hope you're just having a having a great day from uh, from all of us. New Year's Day is always a week after. Uh, a week after Christmas Day, so the next episode drops on next episode drops on New Year's Day. So we'll see it. We'll see it for that. Jordan, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you when you uh, when you can join us. It always livens our our uh, our conversation. So we appreciate it. Thanks, man. And uh, it was a pleasure pleasure to be here. Oh, good. And uh, Pete and Mark, uh, thank you also for podcasting. We'll see you next time on the Overthinking Podcast. Till then, you can visit us on the web where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve. You know, there's a great deleted scene um, from this movie where, um, you know, he has this big blowout with Felicia and then he just picks up an acoustic guitar and just bangs out Wonderwall. He wrote that song, man. It was great. There's another deleted scene in this movie where uh, his, he decides that his whole family is going to make up for the bad Thanksgiving that happened. So he calls his relatives and all these anthropomorphic bears show up. And they come from the doctor's office and the dentist's <laughs> office. <laughs> they learn how to share. It's very good. I can see why they took it out. It was a little distracting. <laughs> I'm here from an, an alternate universe, like pointing at the piano and saying, it doesn't say Stainway. <laughs> <laughs>